G'day, Michaela. Hello. How are you going? Excellent. You have a car, don't you? Yes. Been driving for a while. Yeah. What's your worst car experience? Um, probably when I crashed my boss's car. Ow. Yeah. What happened? Well, I literally went a kilometre to pick something up from a corner store. And, uh, this is awesome. It was miles away. And it was all my fault. I reversed without really looking. <laughs> and a guy in a work car crashed into me. And uh, I went back to my boss. And I must have been in shock because I couldn't stop laughing. And I'm trying <laughs> to tell him I've crashed your car. And he didn't believe me because I kept smiling. And, you know that nervous yeah, laugh you get when you're yep. really nervous? Yep. And I couldn't stop smiling and laughing. Uh, and so he had to go out and actually look at the car to believe me because I was like, Giggling. What sort of car was it? Uh, it was like a Ford Falcon, and at the time, it was like new. It was? Yeah. Before you crashed it? Yeah. How long were you employed there after that? A while, and he, he, you know, there was excess to pay and the whole lot. I said, oh, I'll pay it. It was like my week's wage at the time. It was my very first job <laughs> out of uni. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, he said, no, no, it's all right. Like, he was gutted, but he was really good about it. But, uh, yeah, I felt terrible. Did he sell the car? I don't know, I got made redundant like a year later. <laughs> Your name was first on the list. Yeah. Welcome to the Tradies Business Show, helping you get off the tools and into true business ownership so you can spend more time doing the things that matter most. Now, here are your hosts, Warwick Bidwell and Michaela Clark. G'day and welcome to the Tradies Business Show. You're listening to Woz and Michaela. And apart from talking about crashing your boss's car... That's a good effort, I reckon, for your first job. Yeah, That's a yeah, top no, effort. it was good. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> yep. uh, great way to endear yourself uh, to the boss. Uh, so, welcome to 2016. It's not the first episode, but um, I reckon there's a few people who are still slowly dragging themselves back into the year and back into the swing of things. I know uh, I've been chatting to a, a few tradie clients of mine who are contacting me and saying, oh, yeah, we're not really back into it yet, you know, can we see you next week? <laughs> Dragging their feet a little bit. <laughs> yeah, too much ham and uh, and beer perhaps. But anyway, whatever you did over the break, hope it was fantastic for you. What did you do over the break? What I did was um, I spent, spent a large amount of time on my motorcycle, as you no. can imagine. Uh, I took a couple of days away and went on a motorbike trip out was southwest Queensland, which was awesome. Stayed at a country pub and uh, sampled a bit of the local fare. Um, so that was pretty cool. I hung out with my daughter, went to the beach, um, got a food coma because uh, I ate stuff that I don't normally eat. Yep. I just had a bit of downtime, actually. I didn't do anything. I had this big, long list of things that I was going to do around the house over my break. And I think I did one of them. I fixed the mower and mowed the lawn once, and that lasted about three days <laughs> because, you know, up here in uh, sunny Queensland, it grows while you're watching it. How about you, Michaela? Uh, I just hung out with the family. Uh, it was quiet. Um, Santa heard my um, pleas of uh, um, an Apple TV device for my <laughs> TV, and uh, I binge-watched, basically. You binge-watched I love binge-watching TV. I can't watch one episode of anything anymore. I There's a few people it. that do that now. I love it. It's like my favourite thing is to get right into something that I can't sleep, eat till I watch the whole thing. Yeah. So uh, I binge-watched a few things, and uh, I get very excited when I find a series that has like five seasons, and I've only just found it. It's like, oh. This is so good. So I'm been watching. I'm actually going against my normal belief. I'm actually doing two at the same time. Wow, multitasking the binge watching. Yeah, I don't like doing it like this because every night I go, which one am I going to do now? Yeah. But uh, because it's streaming and stuff, um, it depends on how many kids are on the Wi-Fi network. So <laughs> there's a new rule it. in the house that no kids allowed on the internet after eight o'clock at night. So, so that you can, can watch. binge watch. <laughs> so what are you watching? What what, what are you? Ah, uh, well this. Week, it's uh, Madam Secretary. I love political dramas of any sort. Right, and I, I'll have no idea what you're talking about because no. I don't watch television. West Wing, all-time favourite um, show. Mm-hmm. So I watch 122 episodes of that every year. That's impressive. Yeah, annually. That's almost Even my seven-year-old said, it'd be due for West Wing again soon, wouldn't it, Mum? said, just about, <laughs> buddies, a new again. year. Uh, no, word for word. Uh, Madam Secretary and Mr. Robots, which okay. is a new one on... Um, 
Foxtel and Netflix, which is um, about a hacker. I'm just nodding and smiling. Yeah, I know, but really good. So they're two sort of um, – a bit of Nashville for a bit of soap opera right. thrown in as well. That's what I'm currently getting into. So okay. that's uh, Michaela's TV review for the Good for you. So while you're uh, in front of the TV, I've got the, the motorcycle helmet on and blasting down the highway. That's it. Mm, cool. So uh, we should probably talk to our listeners as well. You know, it's really interesting that we uh, you know, both host this show, but our favourite thing is not talking or being near anyone. <laughs> you notice that? That's right. <laughs> yeah. It's like, I find that with a, with a few uh, media people, actually. Mm. Uh, I being a bit we broad me- here and referring to us as media <laughs> personalities. Media person- okay, we're famous. Yeah. We're famous in podcast land. Famous podcasters. Well, I did meet someone once who said, oh, I think I listened to you and yeah. that was pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. Didn't want my autograph though, but, well, you know. Yeah, no, I haven't been asked to sign anybody's chest yet. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, not any females. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I know uh, there's a few media personalities that do that, you know, when they're not being the whole uh, publicly accessible person on television or radio they like to mm. just go and disappear from everything mm. um so anyway uh we're not disappearing yet we're here talking to you in 2016 or 2k16 as all the funky young kids are calling it that's it uh about how to make your tradie business better so uh whatever your intentions desires goals plans dreams are this year michaela and i uh well we're hoping to play a part of uh, making that better for you and with you, and we've got some uh, some big intentions for the year for uh, the Tradies Business Show and the Tradies Business Toolkit, so um, keep your eyes peeled, make sure you tell your friends about it. But today's interview was one we did actually, uh, it was just before Chrissy, I think. Um, we've been sitting on this one because it was pretty cool, actually, and I, I really want everybody to hear this interview because there was some great stuff in here about how to run a team and how to build a really great team culture as a way or a pathway to a successful business. And so today's interview was with the principal of Ken Mills Toyota uh, up on the beautiful Sunshine Coast, uh, Brett Mills. So Ken Mills is uh, is Brett's dad who uh, I think started the business like 30 or 40 years ago. I think he mentions it in the interview. Um, but when we asked Brett about, you know, the secret to his business and all that, it all came down to creating a great culture yeah. in his business. And I think he has eight, 80, 80 staff, staff yeah. in there. Um, yeah. And and just uh, his advice was great but simple. Mm. It really actually came down to easy things to do and yeah. about building a culture and things like that. So really great episode if you're, um, you've got a little – whether it's one-person mm. team – I don't know if you have a team of one person. Team of one? Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, Or multiple. Yep. Uh, you'll get something out of this episode. It was really great. And, and the you know, importance of the community, um, being active in the community, and how mm. you can use that for a strategic win-win for both parties, not just the charity, without it being, you know. Mm. It was about doing it a bit differently. Yeah. Uh, but still making it work for both the business and the charity, but in a different way. So, yeah, that, that was a really cool point. To, and we uh, also find out about the, the future of driverless cars. Yeah, for all the uh, the car geeks out there. Mm. Uh, he shares uh, a few insights into, I guess, what's in the pipeline over so the next 10 or 20 years. Whether our tradies will be doing their accounts in the <laughs> car on their way to the next jobs. In the front seat of the Hilux, uh, doing your bookkeeping. Yeah, 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 in the passenger seat. <laughs> anyway, enjoy our uh, our chat with Brett Mills. Okay, so uh, we're sitting in, it literally is the big corner office of uh, <laughs> Ken Mills Toyota with the dealer principal, Brett Mills. Welcome to the Tradies Business Show, Brett. Thank you. Great to have you on here, mate. Uh, so for our listeners, I mean, uh, they're probably familiar with the brand, and if they're not, I'm sure you wish they were. But, uh, mate, tell us about Brett Mills, the man, and, uh, and then we'll obviously dig into the, the business background a little bit more as well. Sure. Um, well, look, I'm Brett Mills, the man, married with three kids. <laughs> so that's a fair bit of my life taken up <laughs> right there. Uh, I've got a passion for business. Um, my family has been involved in the car industry for as long as I can remember and specifically with Toyota. Um, I love the product but I love the business more. Mm-hmm. Okay. So what is it you love about the business, Brett? I think this business, and I think most businesses are the same, is that it's 
not something that you can pull a lever today and make a change tomorrow. It's the product of a lot of good forward planning, thought, processes, systems, doing things today that potentially will change what happens in another three months' time. And, you know, if you don't do something today, then probably in three months' time it's going to slide the wrong way. I think it takes a fair bit of ability to pull a large business together um, when you've got so many dynamics, you've got staff, you've got competitors, you know, we've got a franchise or who gives us product who they don't always do what we want to do. So we have to sort of be this shifting sand and kind of make it all stick together. And, and when I get it right, I get a real buzz out of it. Uh, when I get it wrong, I just dig in and try a bit harder. <laughs> <laughs> so we were chatting uh, just briefly before we hit record, Brett. Uh, how many staff, mate? So I look after Nambor and Maroochydore. So that's, that's my business. I'm sole shareholder of that particular business. Um, that business has got about 80 staff. Okay. Um, so we've got f- roughly half and half between our Nambour and Maroochydore sites. Yeah, right. Yep. So the challenges that that presents is obviously a lot of people, you know, can be difficult to manage, but <clears throat> we have um, two separate sites. So I remember some time ago going through a thought process where I, I, had, I needed to change the way that I was managing the business because I realised that I spend uh, a reasonable amount of my time away from the business and then I've got two locations and I came to a realisation that my leading by um, example wasn't going to work because I simply wasn't there enough. So mm. uh, one of the biggest changes I've made in the way I manage over the years is is making that realisation and trying to work out how I was going to get what I want without actually being there. Yeah, okay. And, and how did you do that? Okay, well, did you do it? I shouldn't assume <laughs> anything, hey. I actually did to do it and I have deliberately done it and I don't think anyone can ever say I've got it perfectly right but what I will say is I've got it much better than what it was and I enjoy a more successful business and quite frankly a better life as a result and what, what did I do well what I did was I basically told the people in the business that um, I'm not going to be around much and mm-hmm. you know rather than waiting for me to make decisions decisions are going to have to be made by someone else and I put the appropriate delegations in place um, to make sure that decisions could be made. But probably the most significant thing is I became much more comfortable at telling people what I want, not necessarily how I want them to do things, but I became uh, much more um, comfortable with expressing myself to other people around what my expectations are. And I'd probably struggled with that a little bit prior to this. So I did that the best way that I knew how and I got some good results from that. Um, but then since then, I've learned actually how to do that better. And so I'm going through the process of doing that actually right at the moment. And I actually got these learnings from the from the Disney Institute of how to properly communicate the values that you want to, your staff to uphold in the business um, and how to express right down to every single job role that you've got in your business, the types of quality standards that you expect and what it means in their particular job. So you get to a point where quite clearly everyone knows not just what they're supposed to do, but what they're supposed to do as a car salesman, a technician, a parts interpreter, an admin person at Ken Mills Toyota, as opposed to the assumptions that they might bring into the workplace from somewhere else. Mm, so it's about setting your own standards of expectations, I guess. It is. And, you know, I always have to apologise to my staff. I, I use the word behaviour a lot. And, you know, I use it a lot with my kids as well. <laughs> and I won't say that they're the same. But anyway, uh, you've got to say, look, this is, to a certain extent, this is the type of behaviour that we expect. And this is the type of behaviour that we don't want to have in our workplace that you know, if you worked in another car dealership, that might be quite okay. And there's nothing actually wrong with that. But everything that you do comes back to the customer and that we want the customer to feel different when they walk into or do business with our place as opposed to somewhere else. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I know one big thing that our listeners struggle with is that real micromanaging. You know, no one can do it as good as me. And our the goal of our show is to help tradies actually to get out of their business a lot more yeah. uh, and have more of the lifestyle. But they're so on the tools and only I'll know how to, you know, technician mindset. Uh, and so that's one big thing we like to, to talk about is getting away from that micromanaging and actually delegating decision-making yep. within businesses with guidelines. Yeah. So how did you sort of make that step to really, from a mindset perspective, actually let go a little bit? Yeah, well, I think, I mean, I'll give you my comment on tradespeople's businesses first as opposed to mine. Uh, I think the reality is a lot of tradies are on the tools and at some point they've got to make a decision as to whether I'm going to run a business or whether I'm going to be a tradesperson and do all the work. So if they're going to run a business, it means they're going to you know, probably employ people or at least have contractors working for them. So you're then in that position where you've got to just say, I have to step away. I have to accept that maybe I'm not going to bill as much of my own time but I'm going to invest my time into something else that has a longer-term payback, which is setting my business up. Uh, and the other thing I think that, you, you know, I didn't... Um, I kind of knew what I needed to do or what I wanted to have happen, but I accepted that I didn't know exactly how to do it. And I think that's another... People tend to think that I know how to be a manager and I know how to be a leader and I know how to run a business. Well, I don't think in reality a lot of us naturally have that instinct or instinctively so the first thing i think is work out if it's what you want to do and accept that along the way things are going to go wrong and you'll have times when you question why did i do this um and then i think you need to get some help and it it really to me comes down to um first of all working out what your values are and so therefore you can discuss your values with your employees to help them make decisions, not you make decisions. So you can give them some framework. You can t- tell them stories that have happened in the past that reflect and reinforce the values that you want to uphold as a business person. And then you can talk to them about uh, actual standards that you expect, quite specific to their job role. So, for example, and the standards can really be whatever you like, to make your business feel different to an employee and a guest than the, than another competitor, for example. So one of the things that we have as a standard, this one's a bit quirky, um, our technicians, when they finish a service, put a lube sticker on the car. There's nothing different about that, but we draw a little smiley face on it. So that's a standard in our business. That's a documented standard that... It means that when someone gets their car service from us, when they drive it out, there's a little smiley face looking back at them. So that's a different one, but that's the level that you can get to. I never get a smiley face when I get my car (laughs) serviced elsewhere, but I'm going to have to start coming here, mate. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) My old 80 series doesn't get that many services anymore. (laughs) It doesn't need it. Spends a bit of time (laughs) in the shed. Uh, so it sounds like a massive undertaking, mate, all of that, uh, well, work, but the transition from, and I love that analogy of being a tradesman versus being a business owner. I mean, that's why we started this podcast. How much work was involved for you guys? Yeah, quite, and how long did it take? Sorry, mate. Well, I think the thing is, it's, I don't think it's something that you say, I'm going to start and stop this. It's a continual process. Mm. So you can start quite simply with... The simple thing is to, I'm sure that our friends, our Google friend, um, Google values, business values, and you'll get a list and pick five that you think are most relevant to you. Find stories about things that have happened in the past that you can tell someone who works for you that reinforces your values. Um, That's a really good starting point. And, And, you know, I think there's a lot of discomfort sometimes from people who've been on the tools to sort of start telling my mates what my values are and how I kind of would like them to make decisions and we can kind of feel a bit strange about it. But the overwhelming thing for me was when we started doing this, once we kind of knew what we wanted to say, we then developed a better induction system with our staff. And part of the induction, I worked with an outside HR consultant to do that Part of the induction we agreed would be best delivered by me personally. And so I went along and started telling stories about my family 
um, and how we got to the point where we are and how, you know, this is all we've ever done and we've got a very long history with Toyota. And it amazes me how they sit there and listen to me and they're actually quite interested in what I've got to say. And I think we under um, we underbelieve that people are actually genuinely interested in what we've got to say. Yeah, I think storytelling is so powerful, whether it be in marketing or in a business. Not only does it help communicate, you know, things like values, but people remember stories and they then understand the reasoning behind it. So they're more likely to act on that. But you become memorable, whether it's to your customers or your staff. So storytelling, and, and especially when you've, you've got mates and in that trade game, you know, communicating your values in a story is a lot easier than saying, okay, here's a sheet of paper and this is what I value, you know. Uh, it's such a powerful tool. Yeah. I, think the, I think the important thing as well is that once you've done that and you possibly get to that point with the people who work with you, what starts to become obvious if you stick with it yourself is that perhaps some of the people working with you don't share the same values. And so what then stands out is the need to actually convey your values and your direction to the people who are potential employees or potential contractors. And so what happens is this thing becomes a process of continual improvement that gets better and better and better all the time because, first of all, you potentially find that maybe my values are not the same as some of the people working for me. Um, then you start to project your values in the pre-employment space. So the people who don't have those values just don't start working for you. So you can see what happens is the impact is over time you close the gap with your staff that they always are constantly as a group becoming closer and closer um, in alignment to your values. So it effectively gets better and better and better and therefore what you're doing is you're building a culture by design and so then what happens is if you actually employ someone who doesn't have the same values, they come into a culture and they go, hey, I don't belong here, and generally they leave. So, you know, it, it, it becomes a simple process of it's hard, but it, but it gets easier as you go. Yeah. So one of the things or the complaints, I guess, we'll call it what it is, uh, we hear not just from tradies but from business owners around the country is it's hard to find good staff. And I think... You kind of answered that a little bit, Brett, but, uh, you know, you're in a regional area here, Sunshine Coast, um, you know, there's a certain demographic here. Have you found that an issue for the business yourself of finding the good people? Yeah, so I, it's easier here to find staff than in a lot of other places, straight up. Um, so, you know, rural dealerships, like we've got a in our family dealership in Kingaroy, it's much harder to get staff there than it is on the Sunshine Coast, and that's... That's the location, living, mm. lifestyle. Yep. But I'd probably just, I rephrase that now and say, whilst it's hard to get staff, it's hard to get staff who have the same values as what I do, is the way that we express that now. Mm. So it can be easy to get staff, but getting the ones who are right for me can be much more difficult. And, you know, I really, I do really feel for people who are in places, in, I mean, employers where where there is just such a lack of skilled people to employ it. I understand how incredibly hard that is, and unfortunately we fall into the trap out of need of just basically employing anyone. Um, it's not the way it should be, but unfortunately at times it's reality. But I think if you are in a place where there's skilled people around and you've got competitors, then you need to start thinking about how do I become the employer of choice for the type of person that I want to employ. So you don't necessarily want to be the employer of choice because I just pay the most money. Um, and so we quite pointedly do things in our business to engage our people around the types of things which we think are reinforcing our values. So we surveyed our staff many years ago, or some years ago, um, and a bunch of customers, and we wanted to understand the impact of the fact that we're a family business. So in the automotive world, there is less and less and less genuine family businesses. Uh, what we found out is that our customers didn't care because they, as long as they got good service and a good price, they didn't care. <laughs> you thought it was important. Uh, yeah. else cared. Um, but what we did find out is that the people who work for us care. The people who we want to work for us cared. So we stopped telling the general public that we are a family business 
and we started promoting that back through our staff. And when I say promote, we started doing things that reinforced family-type values. Um, Can I ask what sort of things, bro? Yeah, sure. So right down to just the way we do our Christmas party. So we had a Christmas party just yesterday. Uh, We do it on a Sunday. We have lunch. We invite the whole family. We give the kids gifts. That's one thing. Um, We've become more and more involved in um, charities, especially those, well, not always, but generally those around kids and families. And we try and create situations where our employees can uh, get engaged in the activities that we're doing. So, look, some some do, some don't. But, you know, for those who do, they're probably really closely aligned to our values, so it's worth it for us. Um, you know, I personally try and get around to the dealerships, but in reality, I've got a limit, limited time to do that. So um, the management... Uh, again, we just let them know that these are our family values and, and they reinforce for us. So. Yeah. Now, I'm sure there has been times um, where you've had people on staff that don't match your values uh, and, and that is a lot in our industry as well. So what do you find there where you've got people that, you know, don't share your values and perhaps aren't working as well as they could be? Is it something you look at um, helping them develop or it's pretty much move them on, yeah. you know, as soon as you can? Yeah, so... Um, absolutely, we get that situation. And again, I have learnt how to do this better. And I would simply describe it as either a proactive or reactive human resource management plan. So uh, apart from the fact that we talk about our values and our quality standards and we do induction and we explain what we're about and all the things that we do to try and make our staff understand how we want our guests to be treated. We, we proactively do human resource management around workplace performance. So, you know, this is straight out of the management 101 textbook, really. Uh, we make sure they've got an up-to-date position description and we sit with each employee and re- we review their performance against those um, against the position description regularly. So the biggest situation I see is, is that people feel uncomfortable with that. Managers don't necessarily like sitting down and doing reviews because they just it's just not something that I find a lot of people like to do. But the problem then becomes that if you have got a person who isn't working out, um, you kind of ambush them if all of a sudden one day you say, let's sit down and talk about your performance. Whereas what we find is if you're doing this frequently... Again, it becomes quite obvious to a person if they're not working out. So, again, it to be honest, it increases the amount of resignations that we have, and that's much more pleasant for everyone. And if we do get to a point where we want to terminate someone's employment, it's not untidy. It's sort of a natural conclusion to the way the relationship pans out, isn't it? It is, yeah. And, look, no one likes that part of our role as an employer but if you know if you want to maintain a standard in your business then unfortunately there's going to be people who aren't going to meet it the best solution is to have everything set up to make it clear on the way in what the standards are and the values and the expectations and then don't leave the conversation until it's gone wrong one thing I just want to step back is something really important that you said before is that you surveyed your customers and your staff uh, and and realised that family business wasn't big for the customers uh, as a buying uh, thing. Try so to take note. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's really interesting that you actually made assumptions that that's what your customers were important. You actually surveyed them and it changed your messaging. So it's about not assuming what your customers always want and investing in surveys and getting feedback is so important. I think so, and I mean, if you think about, if I think about builders, for example, right, there'll be some builders out there who, uh, say residential house builders, who want to build large custom-built homes and win awards, and that's sort of one business model, I assume. Now, somehow or other, that builder has to communicate that to the people that he's hiring, because on the other hand, there's another builder out there who just wants to build affordable homes uh, where efficiency is going to be a much more important value than 
you know, someone who's building a, a high-end home. So, um, you know, I think the best thing to do is to think about treating your customers and your staff as the same. Um, so, you know, we surveyed our customers and our staff at the same time. And so whilst we took information out kind of as of them as separate groups, really what you're trying to do is making sure that you've got the match right. So, you know, if you're going to build big custom-built homes, then you need to, first of all, know that there's a market out there, so you've got to ask your customers. But then it's almost like you want staff working for you who actually want that large custom-built home themselves. Yep. Mm, Yep. And so do you find that the staff then become almost the champions of the culture rather than you having to, uh, I guess, own it and protect it? Having done all that work, do you find that it just develops its own energy, its own life? Absolutely. It absolutely does. And, you know, the best thing that happens is when your staff start quoting things back to you. <laughs> uh, sometimes, sometimes they use it against you. But it, it tells you that you've probably at least got the message right. Um, and, you know, what you work out is that if you've got sort of people in management roles, um once they hook onto it, they can take it much further than what you probably anticipated. And so if you've got a lot of people working for you, you know, a 1% improvement across 80 people adds up to an awful lot. Absolutely. So, yeah. yeah. So a uh, very important question. I'm just going to change topics now because I know staffing is very important for the success yep. of a business. But I've got to ask, what are some haggling tips? <laughs> well... He's we about we to need kick us out of his office. No, 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 You've got to be, you know, conscious of budgets yeah, yeah, in a small yeah. business. Yeah, out so there are thinking, I'd love a new Hilux, but, geez, man, I don't know if I can afford that. Yeah. Do, do, haggling tips from my side of the desk or your, <laughs> your No, 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 we want the insider. We yeah. want to know what, what we need to do as customers to get the price down. Yeah, look, I, you know, I always, this is a question I get asked a lot. Here's what I'll say straight off the cuff. It doesn't matter what you buy or where you buy it from, you can always buy it somewhere else cheaper. Yep. So... You know, I just think that what we try and do is be very open and transparent. Um, like at the end of the day, if someone builds a house, does some plumbing, sells a car, I believe that everyone has the right to make a little bit of profit. Uh, I don't ask anyone to work for me and do it for nothing. In saying that, I want to make it very clear that we do very, very good deals here. <laughs> But, so, uh, so you've dodged that one very nicely. What I really think and what I really enjoy, I really enjoy selling, I don't, I don't get to sell cars much, but I enjoy the process where a person comes in, I can see what they want, I can give them a good deal. Yeah, we might have a bit of a haggle over it, but at the end of the day, the customer's walked away, they've got some good advice from me, they've got a good product, I've made a little respectable amount of, Mm-hmm. money for my time and expertise and everyone's happy and to me that kind of makes the world go around yeah mm, mm. I, I see that it's a bit of a an issue that um tradies bump into as they grow and people have a perception that they're a bigger business uh and i have some clients going through this with their staff and their customers that as they get bigger um there's sort of this perception from customers that they must be making more and more money and they're probably going to rip us off um do you find being part of a, a brand like Toyota, um, but also being a, a very large business here, not just on the Sunshine Coast, but uh, really in the country uh, in terms of how motor dealers go, do you find people have that perception about a big dealership versus a small one? And if so, how do you manage it? Yeah, yeah, you do, yeah. Um, and even just the brand, the Toyota brand, and um, like, how do you manage it? Well, because you're not selling, and with all due respect to the other car brands out there, I mean, you're not selling Kias or Hyundais or something, which are built to a price point. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the Toyota brand itself probably has different values behind it. Uh, well done. I, you're trying to be diplomatic there. You've done it very well. <laughs> well, I happen to drive a Toyota Land Cruiser, so <laughs> I'm definitely a Toyota man. Yeah. But, uh, but, you know, there's there's a perception about, price and we talk about price versus value on the show i mean how does that show up for you guys brett yeah i think what you're talking about is probably best dealt with in the marketing arena like i'll attack it from 
that side. And where things have developed in the last uh, few years, certainly in our industry, is around this concept of transparency around pricing. So what we find now is that a much larger range of our cars will be on, I won't say constant discounted drive-away prices, but that is the way that they are more frequently presented to the marketplace. And it sort of achieves a couple of things. One, it, it shows the customer what the car's worth, um, and it sort of means that there's more consistency in what the customer gets uh, from various dealers. So mm. in, in, in complete honesty, the cars are advertised nowadays with less margin than ever. Yep. Um, yep. So generally speaking. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, it's, it's more than about choosing that product rather than who can I get that product at the best price for, mm. you know, a, a Land Cruiser is a Land Cruiser is a Land Cruiser kind of thing. Yeah. And I'm going to pay this much and that's the price on the windscreen near enough, you know, apart from the little friendly haggling that, mm. that goes on. But, you know, if I want a cheap one, I'll go buy a Great Wall or something like that. Yeah. And, you know, like, it's the same. I, I, I kind of feel for tradies at times because, you know, I, I built a, a nice home just a few years back and, you know, I can really see the dilemma that builders are in, particularly when they have to price up a big job because the person who's paying for a big job at the end of the day wants a good quality home. Yep. So, and you know, I'm, I come from the real, I'm a realist, like quality costs a bit of money. Yep. Um, you can't have both. I mean, yep. not completely. So I, I do see it as a difficult thing for um, particularly builders of homes and, you know, everyone shops and starts shopping uh, looking for champagne on a beer budget. That's just human nature. Yep. So. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a difficult process, I think. Yeah. So one thing um, that we're really excited about, and we we have a goal. I don't think we've shared it with our listeners, but hey, we're we're going to. But we have a goal to have the the tradies business show playing in every Ute in Australia at one point. So all the tradies <laughs> driving around. Preloaded, sh- so you don't get a choice. That's it. It's preloaded. <laughs> since you turn the ignition on, the the show is going to come up. Um, but what excites me about that is the technology, as far as um, audio and demand and all that coming into cars now. So what what's the future in the next couple of years for? you know, particularly work, ute vehicles and technology. Ah, yes, this is a very exciting area. So You did get look very excited then when I I changed the subject. I'm actually uh, on um, some some committees at Toyota where we we sort of talk about this stuff and and make decisions. And there's probably three areas of that are going to progress a lot in terms of car technology in the next, let's say, five years. They are uh, autonomous cars so we've seen a bit of news about driverless cars it's in-car communication and it's also car propulsion so start with the last one first um there's been a bit in the news recently about hydrogen fuel cell cars um that is certainly a technology that i think we're going to see in australia you know start to develop reasonably aggressively you know over the next decade at least um, why hydrogen as opposed to electricity or or even hybrids, which have got a bit of a footprint in the market now, mainly that they're able to travel a long distance, just like a petrol-powered car. Uh, they don't need to be plugged in. Um, to a certain extent, the infrastructure is already there, albeit you need specialist fueling stations. Um, and the main reason is is that the emission is pure water that comes out of the exhaust pipe. So from a greenhouse um, emissions, perfect. Uh, in-car communications, there's already a lot of technology in this in this space. Um, some automotive companies, there's a little bit of a tussle between Android and iOS operating systems. So Luckily, we're on both. I'm just going to put that in there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So they're, they're, those companies are sort of tussling to get screen space in in brands of cars so it's an interesting kind of almost a little bit of a disruptor to our industry Mm. um so watch this space i suppose is the message so this will be like something like you know apple will deal exclusively with certain brands as far as the the in-car technology as opposed to that's what that that's what the technology companies would probably like to achieve yeah whether they can or not i'm not sure yeah yeah um 
and then the other one is uh, this, uh, you know, autonomous driving and um, driverless cars. So the sort of opinion probably that I have is that this area will continue to develop. So we've already got cars that have got radar cruise control, lane departure warnings. These things are the things that sort of make... Um, they're, the, they're the start of driverless cars, basically. Um, I don't think, in my this is my personal opinion, I don't think in 20 years' time we're going to be sharing the road with driverless cars. But perhaps... Um, we'll have cars which will have the ability for us in certain situations to limit the amount of driver input. So maybe there'll be certain roads or highways where once you're there, you can maybe take your hands off the wheel. Um, maybe there'll be parts of cities where they're zoned off and there is actually driverless cars inside of a certain CBD area. Um, but there's the technology will develop. It's how it comes to life from a commercial point of view, which would be the interesting thing. Yeah. I, I found it really interesting, um, an interview with someone, and they were saying, I can't understand why Google is going into driverless cars, for example, why they're investing so much money. And Google surveyed their customers, and one of the biggest things that takes them away from being on the internet is driving. So they thought if they can take away the need to drive, then they'll actually it's end up... more crap. Yeah. I thought that was such an interesting... <laughs> product alignment there with the future thinking so is it something you would you know say in the next five years be comfortable in a, a self-driving car oh that's a tough one you know I, assuming you don't sell uh cars that drive let's just take that out yeah. <laughs> that you need someone to drive but just from a technology point of view saying in five years time i'd probably struggle to take my hands off the wheel is, is that a point. metaphor for, for business and life, Brett? Yeah, probably. <laughs> probably, yeah. Sorry, mate. Yeah, I think so. I, mean, I couldn't do it. No, I mean, we, we, we already have technology that, you know, in four-wheel drive situations, we watch people and say, take your feet off the pedals and let the car decline down this fairly steep hill by itself. Just all you got to do is steer it. People struggle with that, you know. Mm. Um, but I guess if you get used to it. Be fine. It'd be interesting having you know Utes driving around where the blokes are all having their team meeting as they're driving from job to job, or you know doing their bookkeeping as they're going between jobs. But yeah, as their highlights we'll drives them to the next job site. That's it. Yeah, <laughs> it's not uh, very manly, is it? No. And so with Utes and particularly work vehicles for our kind of audience, what's on the horizon um, there from Toyota? Um, well, I think. Probably just talking about utes and four-wheel drives. The biggest thing on the horizon that's going to change things is emission standards. So the next round of emission standards, which will be legislated by governments, are going to be quite uh, restrictive on emissions, and it's probably particularly going to affect diesel and uh, diesel power plants. Um, most people don't know, but um, a petrol engine obviously has emissions which are dangerous to the um, environment, but diesel engines also emit chemicals which are actually dangerous to people. So that's getting really reined in by the governments now. And um, what's the potential impact? Possibly that the production cost of the diesel engines will go up fairly significantly. So at the moment in Australia, tradies, four-wheel drives, SUVs, we've got a real diesel uh, desire. Maybe that'll change in the coming years. But what he's saying is to go, come in now and buy them before the, the price goes up in a few years. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I don't actually... I mean, to be frank, I don't know. And the next round... So Euro 6 is the next emission standard. And again, I believe that it's so... Well, it's, it's, it's complexity to achieve is very high that the regulators have actually not enforced a start-up date because I think the car manufacturers are struggling with it a little bit. So, yeah, that, that's interesting... Uh, where that's going to head. VW won't have any trouble with that, though, mate. They'll just doctor up the results. No, no comment. No comment. <laughs> Toyota would never do that, would they? No Brett? comment from me. <laughs> so uh, you talked about being involved in the community before as a, as a big part of your culture with your team and I guess also as, in terms of your business values. I mean, has that always been the case for the business, Brett, or is it uh, something that you sort of realised later on in the journey? Yeah, so we've always sort of given our support to various community groups. Um, so what's changed is the way that we've done that. And so the first thing is that we try and do more with probably less charitable organisations. And I, I learned about the concept of cause marketing in a conference in America 
couple of years back. And what I sort of learned was that what you can do with a not-for-profit organisation is actually try and create a mutually profitable partnership. Um, and so as a business, what you try to do to, to increase what you can do to support that organisation is find a way that that charity can give you something which is useful or which perhaps you're already doing but you're paying someone else to do. So as an example, um, I partner with a couple of uh, these types of organisations and what do we gain from it? Well, we gain obviously the opportunity to talk about it in the marketplace with our customers but we also um, get our staff involved and so our staff engagement levels go up. Um, we tend to be able to actually reduce the amount of marketing that we're doing because they give us great networking opportunities. And if you select the organisations which are aligned to your values, then as a result of that, you are mingling with a network of people who are also similarly aligned. So we've found, one, it's enjoyable. Like I get, in, I get enjoyment from it. So I think that's really important to start with. Um, but we've found that um, partnering with not-for-profits has been good for our business uh, and good for our community and we get a big kick out of it. So rather than being something of a passive uh, donating money or sponsoring a charity for kind of that passive branding side of things, it really is a more, <clears throat> I guess it's both sides, recognising what's going to be of value to each party in that Transaction. I mean, that, that sounds like a, a pretty uh, simple word, but you know, it's it's as you say, it's a partnership. Um, I find a lot of people perhaps feel that that's a bit off in terms of. I mean, you're profiting out of a partnership with a not-for-profit. It, it kind of, you know, some people think that's a little bit wrong. I mean, have you come up against any obstacles there, Brett, with that way of of working together? I don't know that anyone has. I know exactly what you say, and I agree with you. So I don't know that anyone has actually had any negative feeling about that. I think it's the way that you do this that's important. And the critical element is if you... What I've been able to give to charitable organisations as a result of changing my perspective of it is significantly more. So I've had conversations with other business people and I've said to them, you know what, you shouldn't feel bad about the fact that perhaps this is going to improve your brand or your perception in the community. If it means that you can give the charity more, if you can justify that in your in your business plan, then it's a win-win. Mm, yep. Thumbs up from me. So you're part of a massive brand, uh, Toyota. You're a franchisee. You mentioned that earlier. Um, and I know you're not going to diss on the, on the franchise or here, but uh, what, what are some of the challenges of being, I guess, seen as part of this massive global brand and the reality is you're a local business? Um, yeah, that's a really good question. It's a, and it's very relevant because uh, large companies like Toyota who run a uh, you know, franchisee type arrangement and to be probably fair to them, haven't been too controlling, uh, starting to really become um, controlling a way around the way that we represent their brand. So it's creating a situation where for individual dealers, it's becoming harder and harder all the time to actually differentiate yourself from the other dealers. So that's one thing that we have to deal with, that, that it is hard to become unique and getting harder all the time. Uh, the... The fact is that as if a manufacturer slips up, um, we wear the consequences. Mm. So, you know, but in saying that, Toyota has, you know, it's great. We've had a great partnership with them for many years. But, yeah, it's the same with our trades. I mean, they're using equipment and uh, materials all the time and, you know, it, it does reflect on them if whatever product they use hasn't uh, done as it should. So, Brett... Uh, I know you've got lots to do, mate, although you don't sell the cars yourself anymore. <laughs> um, we'll let you go just as soon as I ask you. Uh, there's a question we'd love to ask all our guests on the show, mate. Uh, if you had a 1,000 tradies in a room, what's one piece of advice you'd like to leave them with? Besides buy a Toyota. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Gee, that's a really tough question, you know. 
I, I think that the biggest thing in running a business is just work out how you want that to happen. And I, what I mean by that is, like, do you want to be a guy who just goes and swings the hammer by himself all day and there's benefits and negatives to that? Or do you want to run a business with many employees? I think first thing you've got to do is work out which model you want to run. And that really then starts to drive all your decisions. And, and you know, a lot of the stuff I've spoken about today with regards to employees, you know what, if you're just going to work by yourself, you don't have to really worry about all that. But obviously it limits your ability to produce income. So I think that's the starting point for everything. Yeah, cool, mate. Well, uh, I see some brand new Land Cruisers in this yard, so I better go see what deal I can do to sweeten up the husband for Christmas. What do you reckon? Would yeah. I be wife of the year? Good luck with that. Brett didn't give you any bargaining tips. Yeah, but no. uh, I've got one last question I'm going to sneak in. Uh, what's the, the favourite Toyota you've ever owned, mate? I assume there's been a few. Yeah. Tell I, me you've never owned a Nissan. Brett. No. <laughs> <laughs> I, I actually, at the moment, for the last few years, I'm actually a really big fan of our Kluger range. And I have been for about the last eight years. It's a little bit of a underrated car, I think, in our lineup, and uh, my wife really likes them, and I, I do as well. So I've been saying that I drive a Sahara, but you of know, course I yeah. do like it. I do like the Cougars. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Nice, mate. Well, Brett, thanks for sharing. Thanks for coming on the show, and uh, yeah, some great tips in there for our listeners. Thanks. Thank you. And that's another episode of the Tradies Business Show. Thanks, Brett, for all that insightful information. I hope you got a lot out of it. Mm, I hope you uh, have a great feeling now. Get it? Oh. Oh, what a feeling. Uh, 2016, it it's the, it's the year of even more dad jokes from Wazza. Oh, excellent, because that's what we need. <laughs> it was so funny, actually, over Christmas, I kept seeing all the cracker jokes. Yeah, and I you could think, oh, yeah, I did. Should I keep this for the show and, and do them? But they were really bad. So, well, see, I can't, I can't practice my dad jokes on my daughter because being autistic, she just takes everything so literally. And the poor kid just looks at me like she's trying to figure out why I'm saying that she's a pelican. She yep. says, "No, I'm not." But she has this really concerned look on her face. It's almost like she's <laughs> looking at her arms, going. Is there feathers going to come out of my arms or something? Yeah. So, dad jokes just don't work in my house. Uh, so I have to suffer. Well, Alice yeah. have to suffer. <laughs> That's but right. All good. We're you know it's all about cooperative consciousness this year. Wow, big mm. words for yeah, the yeah. Uh, I've been um, for the end of that episode. I went to Woodford Folk Festival over the break. Oh, so I thought I could one, smell something. Yeah, I'm one with nature and the world at the moment. It'll nice dreads, by the way. Yeah. yeah. yeah have you showered yet? <laughs> uh, anyway, <laughs> got to go. I'm off to shower and um, take. Do something with these dreadies. Yeah, yeah, you're going to shave your head next. <laughs> uh, thanks for tuning in, listeners, and uh, until next episode. Bye. You've been listening to the Tradies Business Show with Warwick Bidwell and Michaela Clark. Want to get off the tools into true business ownership? Find out how at tradiesbusinessshow.com.